All right. Happy Friday, everyone. And we are back again with another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are continuing to explore the landscape of learning technology while cutting through the fluff. And uh, today I'm joined with Naomi Davidson, and she's from Tribe. And we're going to be talking about Tribe, but really we're going to dig into this whole concept of moving from knowledge to actual behavior change and, and what that takes and how practice makes that happen. So while we're getting going here, if you're joining us live, go ahead, give us a thumbs up, share the post, tag in somebody who would benefit from the dialogue specifically around how really practice and, and behavior change can make an impact. Um, and while you're at it, comment in let us know where you're joining us from. So I am in, as always, Waukesha, Wisconsin, where it is a gorgeous day. I am looking forward to my meetings wrapping up so I can join my kids outside and, I don't know, get sunburned or something like that. How about you, Naomi? Where are you? I'm coming in from the heart of Silicon Valley, Los Altos, California. I'm blocks away from the Google and Facebook um, well, not the Facebook headquarters, but you know, the, some of the campuses, so I can literally walk to walk right to the, the next. Yeah, exactly. So, is it quiet there with everything going on? Like, are there is the hustle and bustle quiet, or is everything kind of back to normal? It is. It is quiet. Um, no, it's not back to normal at all. You know, when you're driving around the Bay Area, this is one of the worst traffic places in the nation. And right yeah. now you can leave any time of day you want <laughs> and drive all over the Bay Area. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to adapt when, it, you know, like you have to plan back. ahead. <laughs> exactly. It's it's a dream right now. I, yeah. You know, I have to imagine the traffic thing is has got to be a shift. I, I haven't it's lived weird. in California, but I used to travel there a lot for work. And I remember the traffic sometimes was just it's beastly just brutal. And I, I mean, I, yeah. you know, go to Chicago sometimes and Chicago's bad, but yeah. Chicago's got nothing, nothing on, on you all out there. Okay. We're ridiculous. <laughs> all right. So that's the locations. Uh, we got people joining from all over the globe. So thanks everybody for being here. The other question though, before we get into it, okay. And everybody can play along with this one too. So comment in your answers to this, but you've had time to prepare for this, Naomi. So yes. it's, it's appropriate on the topic. We we're just talking about topic traffic and the impact of everything going on and how it's a ghost town, but we're all working from home. Yes. So when you're working from home, where do you do your work and why? Like, where do you spend most of your time? Yeah. Um, so I spend most of my time sitting in the living room, um, which is really annoying for my husband because it's right next to the kitchen. So I'm very much taking over a major space in the house. And um, why so I'm sitting on like the kitchen table and we have this kind of tatami mat that I'm sitting on. And why am I sitting here? because I love my dog and she'll okay. sit with me all day long. If I sit on this tatami mat, she basically, she's for some reason, she's not feeling like it right now, but she usually just sort of cuddles up behind me. And I'm like, that's just like the best way to work. Okay. Okay. So animal, right. You've got your, you've got your pets that can join you there. And it, mm -hmm. what, it's the only place that, that your dog will join you is in the living room. No, she'd join other places. So I do sometimes like go sit on the couch and, you know, work on my laptop. But again, you know, kind of finding proximity to being able to pet the dog. It's just, it's just like there's something, just, everything is better when there's a dog around. And, you know, sometimes I bring her onto calls with me because, um, you know, she's better at them than I am. And so <laughs> <laughs> got it. she got knows it. how to keep it real. 
Okay. All right. Well, so mine is, so it, most people write this, this is a very familiar territory. So this is my home office. So I spend a lot of time in here, um, largely because with as many things as I have going on, I've got a, I've got a 40 inch widescreen curved monitor and I need the real estate. Right. Wow. And so me like taking my laptop and just going and sitting somewhere, I can't function because I can't, wow. I can't have nine apps up all at the same time. So I do spend a lot of time here. However, sometimes I just need to get away. Um, and I will, uh, I'll, I'll go sit outside to right, get some fresh air. But what's funny is I used to, I, I've got this really cool room in our house downstairs where it's, it's like this four season green room thing. That's kind of off the side of the house. And the previous owners grew bamboo in there. Oh, wow. And I loved, I used to take my giant monitor and I'd set it on a table down there and I'd work down there mainly because it was the best icebreaker in the world, right? Because you would come on camera and this was before everybody had the fake backgrounds, but you'd come on camera and there's bamboo. It looked like I was in the jungle and it was a great conversation point because everybody, where on earth are, it was so much fun, but it wasn't practical. It gets really hot down there and then, you know, you're sweating and it's just not, it's not practical. So now I spend most of my time here. Okay. Anyway, I, I, I love the 40 inch screen. I'm inspired by that. It sounds <laughs> luxurious. I'm working on a 13 inch monitor and sometimes right? I'm like, I'm telling you, that's what I'm telling you. Once you do it, you can't go back. Now I used to have three monitors wow. you know, years ago, and but it was a pain. The curved, I'm telling you, it's worth it. It's worth wow. it. Anyway, wow. I Deluxe. <laughs> yeah. It's a luxury experience or whatever you want to call it. Anyway, all right, enough enough of that nonsense. We've got lots of you know, there are some fellow people though um that are, you know, in their in their living rooms. So I think you're in good company. Good company, Naomi. I'm not all alone. right. So let's switch over to tribe and the practice conversation, all that good stuff. Uh just to kind of set the stage for folks, because I've I've checked it out, I've seen it, but not everybody may be familiar with it. It's it's tribe with a Y dot AI. What is tribe? How do you describe it to people when people say, hey, I, you know, what is tribe? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it looks like it says it says tribe.ai and um and that's intentional. We were making a play on words between the growth mindset element of trying and being and doing, uh, and also the concept of community and the fact that we learn from humans more than we learn from tech or reading a book or anything else, right? We learn from each other and we really wanted to make sure that even though we were we are very much a data and a tech company in terms of how we how we deliver that we wanted to hold ourselves to being a, a people first company and so um, so what does tribe do what do we build we are basically a standard professional skill development company we, we think about how do you make people be effective managers inclusive leadership allyship um, you know all the things that any professional skill development company um, training company would work on or think about delivering what makes us really different, makes us really unusual, is that we bring an element of practice to it. And you set that up at the start where you said, hey, yeah. what's the question that Tribe is asking? And Tribe is asking, how do we make sure that, th that we actually achieve change? when we do a training. And, you know, the the answer to that is in some ways very simple, but it's also very hard. Uh, the answer is with continuous practice. Um, I, 
in the, you know, kind of nerdiest way to say it is um, through context switching and time delay um, that you need to be able to do the activity again and again and again through time, spreading it out with stuff in between. And that's a really nerdy way of saying that you need to practice over a period of time and small bits and pieces, just like Wait, a you mean once isn't enough. Exactly. Is that what you're trying to imply right now, Naomi? That that's doing exactly it once what I'm, is not it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. When we say practice, and I was mentioning this to you earlier, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to fellow instructional designers and I say, oh, we do, we do practice with tribe and they're like oh yeah we do that too you know we have a, a part of our session where we do an application of the concept and I'm like oh you know to me that is applying it applying it once but nobody really fundamentally changed habits right by doing something once right um I certainly we would never I like to use the example we would never say to somebody, hey, go play basketball, um, read this book, try it once, you're ready to go. Right, here, <laughs> sign we, you up for you, here's your NBA contract. Exactly, and not only that, how about let's start with our, our first game competitively, right? So let's just go out there and, and make it count from the start. Yeah. So um, so yeah, so I, I it, it's the area where Tribe really excels and the way that we um, get people to practice, so, what we do is we built a very simple tool that uh, helps helps people change mindsets and habits. And uh, so we focus on that part of behavior change because that's really uh, where the change begins is in your mind and in the habits that you do. That's the easiest way to build something in people's day to day. Uh, and the way we do that is with a very, it, it sounds uh, fancy, but it's really simple. It's like a very simple app that um, encourages people to reflect on a short number of questions okay. uh, per day to raise their awareness um, and to uh, basically get them to practice thinking about the thing. So it's, it rests on a cognitive behavioral approach to behavior change. Okay. Got it. Well, and we'll dig into this a little bit more because it's one of those things that when we were talking about this before we went live, yeah. it was one of those things where I think we all want, right? Even, even personally, we want to change behaviors sometimes. Yeah. We're like, yeah, I really want to not do this anymore, or I want to start doing this. And yet we don't, right? Yeah. And over and over again, that happens. And the same thing is true with employees in our organization. So, but before we do, I'm just curious, because when you look at, when you look at the um, platform, is this a, are you targeting, does Tribe typically look at working with organizations? Is it end users too? Like can, can consumers use it? Cause that was one of the things that wasn't super clear to me from the website. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. We are, um, the great thing about Tribe is that we we aim to be, we serve organizations, but we're asking ourselves to be consumer friendly first. And important is that basically if we don't hold ourselves to the, you know, maybe this is a better way to say it. What what really is vying for each of our attention day to day, yeah. right? If if as a learning tech company, if I think of myself as um, basically just serving the organization, I'll end up making learning products that you have to force people to use. Yeah. We force ourselves to make learning products that are really sticky and engaging and feel like something I want to go and spend time with. Our North Star is competing with Netflix. Those are who we think of as being the, the, the competition for basically your attention. Uh, can we make learning as delightful and easy and feel good 
Uh, so you want to come back to it as even using a Fitbit or something like that. So really aiming for that consumer level quality of engagement and delight while being able to serve, uh, you know, organ- at the organizational okay. level. Well, because I, when I was looking at it, some of the topics, right, some of the yeah. different behaviors and things like that, um, my, my question really was like, if, if let's say, because I was curious, I'm like, you know, is that something that just a consumer can, can kick the tires and, and test it out? Or is it something yeah. that an organization has to have to be able to use it? Because I think the lines continue to blur yeah. between, well, and, and COVID only blew this t- the roof off this one, the lines yeah. are so blurred between work and life that yeah. sometimes trying to draw those line in learning too is like, well, I only learn these skills at work. Like really communication skills, you know, strategic thinking, critical thinking. I mean, all these different things, adaptability, yeah. you, can't, you can't benefit from that anywhere. So I think that's, that's where sometimes it is hard to be able to kind of separate those two. Totally, totally. And I couldn't agree more. We do a lot of stuff building emotional intelligence skills and relational intelligence skills, which obviously serve in a professional environment massively, but at home they do as well, just as well, like learning how to regulate your emotions when you're feeling stressed out. That's really important to people these days. So we do find, um, so people can come, we often are holding workshops uh, that are available to the public giving them, you know, the tools to manage stress, manage anxiety, um, learn how to uh, really engage with your your um, your day in a way that helps you to manage your energy and not your time, right? So that you can kind of learn to um, know when your highs and lows are during the day and how to balance your calendar and how to think about um, when do you rest? How do you rest? Are you resting? And a lot of those things are, are great for people at work, but they're incredible incredible also when you think more holistically about your life and just how you're showing up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, it just goes back to that point, right? We're people and mm-hmm. people are people, whether they're at work or whether they're at home, we we've tried for a long time, I think, to try and separate the two, Yeah, but it, we're the same, we're the same in one. So, yeah. so with that, uh, because when I, when you look at how you've targeted this and, and I want to talk about the soft skills side, we'll also talk about the practice piece but you've you've honed in on a specific set of behaviors you know at tribe and i'm curious you know wh- what where did that come from and and how did you prioritize like hey these are the ones we really are going to to bank on yeah so there's we are focused mostly on soft skill stuff yep. uh, though we do bleed into hard hard edges on that. And I'll, I'll talk about a couple of them. Uh, but how did we choose? Basically, from the world that I see as a learning and development professional that people over index on the hard skills. And I think in large part that, you know, that's because in order to be able to do our jobs, that's kind of table stakes, right? I need to know the basics of how do I, especially as an independent contributor, right? I may need to know how to do coding. I may need to know how to, yep. you know, as a project manager, I need to know the basics of project management, um, you know, change management, I need change frameworks. I mean, so there's always a, a hard skill um, basis from which we need to start. So it's not surprising that we begin with the hard skills. However, Increasingly in this marketplace and with the more complex organizations that we work in, to be a competitive professional, you need the soft skills um, to differentiate yourself or really to be um, 
you know, to stay relevant, I should say, in today's economy. Uh, you know, AI and other things, automation are going to push push us more and more and more and more to having to basically differentiate ourselves by being human. And humans are great at complex thinking, at the soft skills, at context, and all of these other elements that if you just really focus on the hard skill stuff, more and more and more, that'll get um, automated. So, you know, you'll really be left out of the the future marketplace, I think, if you, if you focus there. So... Yeah. Um, so there's a market need. Uh, hopefully you can still hear me. There's oh, also yeah. this gap <laughs> on um, coverage of the soft skills. And because, especially when it comes to behavior change, because this is the area that is the most nebulous. It's called soft for a reason. Um, it's the least understood. It's the last bastion in my mind of where fixed mindsets still reign supreme. I think most of us believe that you're born with grit, that you can't change how much grit you've got, um, that you know most of us are coming in with kind of a fixed mindset around things like presence, gravitas. You're either a great communicator or you're not. Yep. strategic thinking, analytical thinking, communication, exactly. So um, all of that stuff, though, we know is learnable. And we actually know we can learn and we can measure the learning of it. Um, however, it's, it's, it's the least explored because it's, um, it's the most nebulous. Yeah. And so um, we, we actually kind of love that challenge at Tribe. And, you know, that really motivates us. And, and ultimately, you know, for, for us, because we really are a, um, a social, I would say that we're basically a social justice company as well to us, basically making social, soft skills widely accessible is one of the ways to create more meritocracy in the workplace, to give people the ladders they need to be able to really engage at higher levels of organizations, um, even when they're coming maybe from different backgrounds where you don't get taught that at home as much, yeah. um, at least in ways that would be relevant to a professional working environment. Well, and, it, and I hear, I've, I've heard the debate. I don't even know that it's really a debate so much because I think universally people are acknowledging that, I call them human skills. I don't even call them soft skills because like they're, especially in the age of automation where yeah. it's, they're the things that make us uniquely yeah. human, right? Yeah. It's, it's something that a machine probably isn't ever going to be able to do because it's, it's completely distinct to the way we do things. And I think one of the things that it's not that we need to move away from hard skills, they're still important and new hard skills are coming out all the time. It's just one of those things where, you think about it and the shelf life is just much shorter on yeah. the hard skills because automation machines are, are picking them up because they're, there's, you know, repeatable, they're patterns. We can teach a machine to do it. We can't teach a machine to do some of this other stuff. So I think exactly. it's a smart play. Exactly. You know, another thing is for people who like to work in environments or creative, innovative environments, like in a startup, there's just also this speed of change and chaos in terms of the problem that you're solving any given day. And so what you just said about the, the kind of shelf life of hard skills is very real in, in an environment that's fast paced and highly creative, because the problem you're solving tomorrow may be completely different. And the great thing, and I love your human skills, uh, a twist on that. I might steal that. Uh, <laughs> the great thing about the, the human skills is learning to learn. You can learn to learn. And yes. I think we often call that adaptive, right? Being a, that build your adaptability. And so there's ways that you learn how to learn. And the, the, the better you get at learning, the more that all that chaos and change 
is something that you can embrace and that you can be a very productive participant in, as opposed to somebody who is overwhelmed by it and um, you know unable to contribute. But if if that's an environment that excites a person and want they want to get into that in a career sense, um, learning to learn is one of the best skills that you can acquire. Yeah, well, and I think with that, as we as we look at this. This is why to me, right? People are very scared of this whole automation age. I see the fear in in a lot of situations where people are like, what is what is my future, right? I'm hearing either upskill or, or be irrelevant type yeah. stuff. And that's, first of all, one that's a terrible way to communicate it to an organization because- <laughs> You know, you want to paralyze an organization with fear. Tell them like, do this, or you're no. Or become longer. irrelevant. Like, yeah, oh, I wonder why people are are scared and afraid to work. Yeah. Um, but I think the point with that is, um, you know, when you look at it, these human skills are truly, to me, a window for people to find their relevance and hone their relevance yeah. in a changing world. Because, you know, what you can now take these skills and apply them in really any situation, right? They're completely transferable. And it almost puts you in a more strategic, more sustainable place yeah. to be able to operate. So I think we, we don't need to get into the whole skills discussion because we could talk about that forever. forever. But I think it's an important point that, you know, mm -hmm. the, the place that you're putting practice, right? When we're saying, well, practice is so important. If you're going to put effort and time into practice, do it on the things that matter and the things that are going to carry forward at least first, because that's where you're going to get the biggest return on the investment. So I think we've, totally. I think we've nailed that one down, but let's talk about practice because it's so easy to say, right. When you say, well, just practice, like just keep yeah. doing it, keep trying over and over again and, and you'll get it. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't right. Yeah. As individuals as L and D leaders, a lot of times, that doesn't that doesn't always come in. And obviously you created co-founded tribe or founded tribe to try and tackle that. Yeah. What gaps were you seeing that you said we can do better? Yeah. Well, it really first began with um I hate to say it was a battle, but it really has felt like a battle at certain times. Um, you know, I was coming from being the head of strategy and operations for sales enablement at uh, LinkedIn. And we, you know, there's a high bar for excellence at LinkedIn and the sales enablement function there really, really cared about impact to business outcomes. Yeah. And uh, we were actually, I wanna say one of the more sophisticated uh, enablement teams that I've ever seen in my career uh, in that we had, we really had the skills to do it. We, we had data scientists, we had um, product people, data product people, we had, um, you know, coaches and sales coaches. We had, we knew what skills we were going at. We were able to measure it. We were able to um, uh, launch, build our own tools to, to help our sales professionals that really linked up to the sales cycle that we wanted. We had an amazing sales methodology. We had all the pieces of the puzzle and, um, we we built programs that uh, really actually did have extremely high impact, and there was this um, the 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 one that was the most impactful. We had statistically significant impact quota, and um, this is an environment where you have like sales ops teams. We had another team that was called the insights and analytics team, and they they literally are like a team of data scientists who were like getting the the right insights to the right sales rep at the right time to be able to deliver to the client and say, hey, did you know that 
you know, this kind of flow is happening with your talent at your company. And these are the things that they're looking for. And you have attrition risk and all of this other kind of stuff. So we have this really sophisticated, it sounds like, (laughs) yeah, this really sophisticated, extremely um, powerful set of resources to be as effective as, as LinkedIn can be. And so for our team, our sales enablement team to have um, achieved this statistically significant impact quota with this program, which was basically a coaching program. And the coaching program was designed to basically just get into the workflow with the sales manager and rep to work on building practice around these skills that mattered the most. And a very simple process. And we, um, you know, measured it, saw this impact the quota, um, got validated that we had this impact to quota, a 20% increase in quarter over quarter attainment uh, for coached reps, which is huge. So large number um, and validated statistically is robust, um, a true signal. And um, despite that, despite that massive impact, what I saw was, um, and, and by the way, you know, some of these other teams that I mentioned could not boast the same. Nobody could really okay. point to such a big impact. That's, the sales world can be very, what we call noisy in the data world, right? Everybody's yeah, trying to affect it. Exactly. Everybody's trying to affect it. There's market dynamics. There's all these things. So even to have a statistically robust signal is a big deal. Yep. And then to have it at that scale is even, is even larger. So I thought, um, kind of naively, like, wow, we've done it. We've hit the nirvana of behavior change. Everybody's going to stop and say, let's focus on methodologies and practices that really engage, um, you know, basically we're using a, using the idea that we can get people to practice by working in a kind of coaching relationship okay. with their manager. And yep. we can measure that practice and we can encourage it. And we can get this change. So we did all of that, as I just mentioned. But that moment of like, woo, that I was waiting for didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in fact, it was more like, huh. <laughs> and I think it's because, um, you know, sometimes, and, and I used to see this when I was back at McKinsey as well, sometimes you can have this extraordinary impact, this huge outsized business app impact to business. But if the business isn't ready to invest in it, or they're not ready to understand why that's happening, or, you know, maybe they just don't believe in it, even if the data is there, um, the, the, you won't, you won't win. You'll, you'll just sort of a trip back. So we did, um, you know, we basically, um, you know, leaders were kind of like, meh, you know, and, uh, they disinvested in the program. And and that was one of those moments in my career where I just said, well, if you're not going to invest, I am and, uh, left and brought some people. Okay. Yeah, this is something, this is, it's exactly as you'd expect. Coaching and practice makes this massive impact it's measurable. Uh, you can you can really kind of dumb down the practice process. You don't have to uh, you don't have to overcomplicate measurement in that space. And um, you know, basically, if people do things and they do things enough, they will change their behavior. And um, it's kind of like advertising. It's a very simple similar process, right? If I see yeah. something enough, I'll start believing in it. Um, and so uh, we we basically embarked on that journey. Well, what, what's funny about that story, because I think anybody watching who's been in L&D for any period of time that's done some of this stuff has has had that same moment, right, where where you you nailed it, right? You crushed it. And you're so excited. And you're like, ta-da, like, look, we did it. We and it's met with this, like, 
right? <laughs> oh, nice. Thanks. Right. What did you, do you not understand what just happened? The power behind what we did. Yeah. And that is a challenge with, I think a it lot of times the innovations that we make in learning is that we're, we're dealing with stakeholders who a lot of times also don't understand it, right? I mean, yeah. I think in many regards, we're learning it. And many of us are on that journey, but our stakeholders also are. And I think sometimes that's where we miss it is totally. we'll bring them along for the journey, right? So by the time we present them the output, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I don't get it. Like, what's the big deal? And then we, we end up right back where we were. And I think that's an important point to highlight that it, it, so when it comes to this stuff, you have to bring everybody along for the journey and help them see what you're seeing, or you'll run into that risk time and time again. hundred percent. We deal with it all the time. We're like our stakeholders, are like, yeah, we really want behavior change. So send them this PowerPoint. <laughs> you're like, what? Yeah. No, that that's not that's not what we should be doing. But again, we we've got to bring them along for it. So I'm curious with this. And so you actually just to okay. just to kind of explore that a little bit more because yeah. here's a mistake that I made thinking that I was doing that, but make and this is I think a classic mistake um, along bringing you know in terms of bringing the the stakeholders along for the ride. Most of the things that you say, hey, we're gonna we're going to, we're aiming for statistically, we're, we're aiming for impact to quota. We're aiming for behavior change. Do you want that? And they say, of course, of course I want that. Um, so being aware of how you're asking the question, if you ask yes. the question in a way that basically everybody will say yes, because how could you say no to that question? Right. <laughs> um, you won't actually surface the true underlying resistance to what was underneath it. So if I were to go back and to give myself more coaching at that moment, um, I would definitely say, what if you paint more of a picture of what will be different and ask them if they want that? And are they willing to make trade-offs for that thing? How much do they want it? Is there a burning platform around that? And I think what people would have then done, you know, for example, like if I were to say, what if I could get everybody in this organization coaching and looking at that coaching data um, and in a, in a way almost like shied away from what you think intuitively is what you are asking them for is like, what if I can, if I can change your, your quota yeah. attainment rates? Um, instead, like, do you want an organization of people coaching their reps? Is that what's important to you? And are you willing to make trade-offs and investments to get there? Um, yeah. Well, it's a good point. And, and um, you know, we, we, we've got the point, right? It's how we ask the question. And okay. I think this is something, right? This has nothing to do with practice, but now we're talking about, right? That whole needs analysis, right? How do you get into it? Yeah. Because we do drop the ball and I can say over oh, here, I've dropped the ball so many times. So this isn't like a pointing the finger because no. I'd be pointing right back at myself. Yeah. But we, we make mistakes like coming in with telling them this is what we're going to do instead of asking questions about yeah. what do they want, right? If you come in and go, I did the greatest thing in the world, but I never bothered to ask you, is this something that would matter to you? And then expecting them to be through the moon about it. Well, that that's on you, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like, you didn't take the time to, you know, ask the right questions, understand the situation. And I think the other thing I've talked about this on a number of, of different events is sometimes the language we use just like, we, yes. we use this like language that doesn't resonate with our stakeholders, right? We, we totally. use 
words and phrases and things. And they're like, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, that sounds good. You seem very excited about it. Yes, I'd be very thrilled if you, you know, improve the learner experience and transform user behavior. Okay, yeah, yeah, do it. They don't know. They don't know what we're saying. They they don't really. They're not excited about it, but they're excited because we're excited. And I think this is a really important point to any of this stuff when it comes to behavior change. Is that if you're going to do it, make sure you're doing it right, and that you've you've brought them along. You've made sure you've identified something that really matters to them, because that otherwise, you still run all the risks we run into of things going south. Exactly. And, um, you know, a sort of story from the tribe side of doing the same, making a sort of similar mistake in, in terms of um, working with working with our clients in the early stages. I remember I was working with a client who, a senior VP insurance company and looking to really change the culture of his team to one of having greater radical candor. So we come in, we do the workshop, we have the practice, um, a team of basically 20 VPs get on, uh, you know, go through the, the training. They practice for uh, three months. They practice, you know, soliciting criticism, praising people's work, um, and then, you know, like public praise and private criticism. And so they, they really, they practice, um, 80% of their team practices three and a half times a week for three months. This is like huge. And so we look at the data and we're saying to ourselves, at least from a tribe perspective, we're saying this is, uh, we, we think that we have delivered on the promise, right? And so we, we sit back and we say to the to the senior VP, like, hey, look at all of this practice that your team just did. And uh, he says, he says, great, but you know, what really changed? And then we go back in and we sit down with the team and we say, hey, you know, who feels like there's been change and can we validate it with your team? And half of the team raise their hand and they say, I feel like I, I changed, which if anybody knows change management, 50% of a team of, tw of 20 VPs, 10 VPs, 10 VPs saying that they feel that they've seen a measurable change in how they lead yeah. in three months is a massive win, right? Um, and we walk out of that and they're like, well, you know, I don't really know if that's enough. And it was just one of those things <laughs> where, um, again, aligning on what specifically are we looking for? And it was one of those big lessons for me of still just kind of rushing to what I think is the answer. Like if, if you can deliver on behavior change of half of your team is changing how they do it. Is that going to be what you need to win? And, and as yeah. I dug deeper with that client, I realized he was actually still working to get alignment from his leadership. So yep. in some funny ways, he was actually, I think that actually that amount of change was a little bit disruptive for him because it kind of alerted people to actions that were going on in his team that were maybe a little bit um, less expedient. So it's interesting because with behavior change comes change and change is not comfortable. And no. so working and through the time. process. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think one of the things you brought up that um, we have to give ourselves, I think a little bit of grace on this sometimes when, when we, yeah. when we're dealing with this, because I, I've, I've had more than one occasion, more than a lot of occasions, right. Where you, you make an impact but it's it's almost kind of dismissed as well. It, it wasn't big enough, or it wasn't mm -hmm. enough, and then mm -hmm. we we kind of walk away from it instead of saying, "Wait, let's focus on like we did make an impact. How do we now 
accelerate or expand that impact instead of saying it wasn't enough let's walk away because I, I i see that with you know, you'll hear it with with behavior change stuff where it's like well not everybody engaged okay that's fine right not everybody's going to engage not yeah. everybody's on the same step in the journey and some people are going to come along later some people are going to jump in but if we don't ride that change curve all the way through we're walking away from from massive, massive impact because we're totally. giving up way too early. Exactly. You know, I love that. It, and um, one of the things that I often say is that you will never, ever, I've never seen it happen where you have 100% change immediately. And I think everybody intuitively knows that's impossible. And yet somehow often when we're starting off, if we don't get 100% right away, people are like, oh, well, it just it huge failure. <laughs> um, and what, what always, to your point of really just like being ready with that change, um, that consultative change management sales readiness, if you will, um, is to be able to say that like, hey, without that, we're just seeing, we're just starting to see the, the process of change. I like how you said that, but we're also like, if we just run away, we actually know for a fact that over 90% of it would have been lost. So any amount of better than that is better, right? I mean, so we've just doubled our ROI by having, or maybe even quadrupled it um, by having 50% of the room actually change their behavior because I mean, 80% of it's gonna be lost in memory in a yep. few months, let alone changing a behavior, right? So um, just being able and ready to evangelize for the process, the amount of investment. And then of course, as you're saying, the impact that we are then leaving on the table because we pour all this investment, all this effort into it, no matter how great a workshop is and how brilliant a facilitator and how incredible your content, without that reinforcement and practice that follows up later, you know, the neuroscience is very clear. It will yeah. be lost. It's lost. And, and you know, on, on this topic, I think it's one of those things where there's there's some role we have in, in making this work, I think. Well, there's a, there's a lot of roles. That's why we're here. But I think, right, sometimes we set the wrong expectations. Mm -hmm. right? we, we make promises yeah. we can't keep. Totally. And so we, we have a duty to say we need to set good expectations. And I think we need to get really good at telling the stories of those outputs. So as an yeah. example, I recently you know, I had a situation where we, we had a behavior change initiative, right? That was designed to change behavior and, um, and it worked, it, it worked. And it was, I was thrilled that it worked, but it, I was able to see it work because I could see through the noise. Mm. Not everybody could, right? Because on the surface, it didn't look great. We didn't have super high engagement. Yeah. Um, we didn't have all um, the movement that we wanted. It mm -hmm. didn't go quite where it was. But when I mapped it back, and this goes back to starting with the end in mind, we were very specific when we started this to say, what is it? And we worked with, with our stakeholders around, what is it that we want to change? What is it you want to change? Mm -hmm. And when we did that, it made it easier because I said, I get, we didn't get all the engagement. We didn't get everybody through the way we wanted to. But if we look at the ones who did, we hit the nail on the head. We got yeah. this, we got this, we got this. So let's, instead of saying, you know, let's just walk away from it. Let's say, how do we cut out the noise? How do we yeah. elevate what we did get? And that yeah. completely transformed the narrative from this was a failure 
to this was a success in learning. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about how do we make failure part of the culture? And it's about, you you have to be able to tell that story and show the, the, the you know, diamonds in the rough. Absolutely. I've started to work that into the strategy that I present at the start, right? Because you always have, you basically, you run your first training or your program. And what I call it is you're looking for those bright spots. Those are going to be your change agents for the next cycle, right? Because, you know, again, change never happens all at once right yeah. away. It begins with finding those champions, finding those bright spots. And then, as you said, investing and in accelerating their influence over the rest of the organization because people will follow people. And so now you kind of reinvest again. I've, I've, changes happen in phases. And so if you are, like you said, bringing your stakeholders along, preparing them for that, preparing them to know that that's what we're looking for, um, you know, so helping to kind of mitigate the the disappointment. Right, um, right. And reminding them of it because there is disappointment. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. I think if anything, we keep talking about this. This is hard work. Yeah, it's hard work. Changing behavior on yourself is a pain and a mm-hmm. nightmare. Yeah. Changing behavior in an organization at scale, like this is not like, oh yeah, we did that. That was easy. We just knocked that. Like, no. So one question that came up from Lelaine that I'm actually curious about, it's actually a good suggestion, right? Because we're talking about this change agents and how do you highlight, right? The ones where it work, you know, are you, is part of what you're doing with this kind of building a community of, I love this, tribers right? <laughs> that, that are almost I kind of serve as this change catalyst in an organization to say, hey, we're building this community of people that let's get those early adopters. Let's get those people that jumped on board and let's yeah. use them to create the tidal wave that's going to carry the organization forward. I, I love that. I love that framing. Um, and in fact, I'm going to use that framing as a way to talk about the community that we're building. But we actually just had a um, release, a new release of our of our practice tool. Or, um, and it's... Uh, it has a huge community element in it, uh, a community element that basically helps us connect with each other, ask each other questions, um, you know, rely, it, it's based on a lot of the theory around give and get, just to be able to uh, exchange information, ideas and knowledge and really start to surface who those champions are to that point in that question. Um, I've never really framed it with that kind of clarity and, and uh, perspective in relation to change. So thank you, um, whoever asked that question, because it was, it actually, you've helped you me. Go, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, you helped me think about, you know, really the utility of it in, in a really um, important way. I think of community as being so important for so many reasons. You know, you can almost sort of forget to then say yeah. like, God, this is one of the pieces of gold that we could really use for a lot of those change initiatives that we're running because we need, we need those, um, we need to incentivize those champions. We need to recognize those champions. Um, and part of what I think we can do as learning and development professionals is surface to an organization. One of the things that I see people not knowing what to do with the data is not knowing how to say that what is the value of knowing who is not engaged and yep. who is engaged. Instead of looking at the learning and development professionals saying like, you failed because half of the group didn't engage. What if we're really in a conversation where we are saying to them, hey, I can surface insights about the team's engagement on X. I can tell you the why. Exactly, exactly. And I can start helping you to see 
who the kind of rock stars and movers and shakers and people that you want to empower to help you unlock the next level of change, right? Yeah. And so to this person's point, we have that data in our in our hands. And uh, you just reminded me of another place where I have that data in our hands and I wasn't paying attention to it. But I, I think of that as one of our big jobs is to be able to say, so what if we're like a group, we know, for example, that grit and a growth mindset are the two strongest predictors of performance um, in, in anything in, in life, in yep. anything. Well, what are we measuring in our world? Grit and growth mindset. We literally are the people, the front lines of who gets to see who are the people with the strongest, uh, with the grit, you know, they're applying all that effort and practice. And, you know, that is, they're building their skills, they're they're trying again. So we see a huge part of that and being yeah. able to surface that to business leaders is powerful insight, powerful information. Well, and and two things that that you brought up that kind of jumped out of this conversation that I will just reinforce, right? That change agent thing, some of the most successful initiatives that I've led, and, and I know there's a lot of pressure a lot of times to say we have to do things top down, right? It, yes, there needs to be senior support, right? If senior yeah. leaders are, are saying the exact opposite of what you're doing, you're, you're pushing a rock uphill. You can do it, but it's you're really pushing a rock uphill. That said, I have seen tremendous power in when you really leverage those change agents and you blow that out of the water, yeah. it, it spreads like COVID, right? I mean, it does yeah. like, whew, because yeah. it moves through the organization because suddenly people want to be part of something and they're, they're following yeah. their peers. There's exactly. a big disconnect between, you know, the front lines and senior leadership doesn't mean they don't play an important role, Yeah, but, it, but it's not just a, that or that it's a that and that. And I think I that, that's a huge point to kind of highlight with that in terms of, of success. So I think you know, one of the questions that came through, we've been talking about this a lot, right? In terms of the influence of leadership, I think we've answered some of these questions, which is right, really dig into what are the pain points, bring them along for the journey, talk in their language. Like there's no shortage of things. And I think the other thing is, I don't know about you, but with a lot of things, I don't have like the top 10 list because they can change, right? There's, there's yeah. practices and principles, but every situation seems to have its own. Is that is that fair on your end? Yeah, I think that's fair. I love how this this question is being framed too. Like you, they come with you to the stream, but it's hard to get them to drink with you. Yeah. Um, the I, I totally agree. I, I think that a lot of this um, comes from there. I, I want to say this clearly, so hold me accountable to that. Yeah. Um, people will say a lot of things about what they want, but it's not really what they want. Right. So like the, the yes, famous exactly thing, what you're getting at. <laughs> the famous example is Henry Ford said, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Right. And I feel like as L and D professionals, we get a lot of that. I'm sure a lot of other departments too, but, but it feels very yeah. frequently like everything's a learning solution, right? Oh, we need, you know, meetings. We're not doing meetings well. So we need to have a training on meetings. on meetings. Exactly. I just had a conversation with somebody just the other day, exactly that thing. And that, that, that is an example that comes. So I do think that um, it gets back to some of the conversation that we've been having is to hear, try to hear the request as a, an indicator of a need, but don't, 
walk away until you really understand what are they truly trying to solve for because there's, and trying to break it down, are they really asking for accountability? Um, are they actually asking for behavior change around meetings? Um, are they trying to say that it's a whole other issue that we right. we fear that we lack productivity in our organization? What is it really? And then as a learning and development professional, I think that um, it, whether depending on how your organization is uh, is structured and aligned, you know, being willing to say, this is something that we need to be able to partner with on yeah. an organization. Sometimes there's organizational implications of things. Sometimes there's, uh, it's really actually leaders have to get engaged and do their job more because accountability is really the leadership job, right? Yep. Are we not doing it because we don't know how to do it or are we not doing it because the people aren't being held to account to it? And so, um, or we're not seeing our leaders demonstrate it, uh, right? So we, we are asking for something we're not willing to do ourselves. Um, well, and I think what's interesting about this, you bring up the Henry Ford example, and I, I've seen that actually taken the wrong way, right? Mm -hmm. Where people go, this is why you don't ask people what they want because they don't oh, really yeah. know what they want. So <laughs> we're just going to come to the table with this. Right. And when I hear that, I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's how you end up in this situation with like a cat with a dead bird. And you're like, ta-da, look what we did. And they're like, get out of my office. That's like, the worst interpretation right? to not that is have. the worst interpretation. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think the point that you're getting at, and and so another example I use, you know, with this is very similar, right? You look at, you look at Steve Jobs and what he did with the smartphone. Yeah. People weren't saying, I need email and apps on my phone, but he was watching the tides of what was happening with the way human behavior. And this is why I think we're super well-equipped to see this because mm -hmm. we understand human behavior. And at the yeah. end of the day, organizations run on people. Yeah, And you can start to look at how are organizations starting to operate? What is the way people are moving? What are the things that are happening? And what Steve Jobs did was he didn't go out and ask like, how can I improve your cell phone? And then people said, well, you know what? You could make apps on the phone because they wouldn't have even thought of that. But what he did is he saw the way people were behaving, the way people were performing. And he said, you know what would solve this? is that. And I'm sure there was no shortage of people that probably fought back or things like that, but he brought them along for that. And I think the Henry Ford thing is probably a similar one. People probably were saying, we need to get places more quickly. Faster. Yeah. We need, we need faster horses. Efficiently. It's really yeah. great. It's, I hate that I can be the only person that rides on the horse. I mean, I don't, that's a ridiculous example, but you know what I mean? Yeah, he I was listening to that Yes. and then saying, aha, okay, what's behind that and how can I innovate and solve for that problem? And I think that is where we can lean in on this type of stuff. So and important. That's the kind of stuff that, yeah, they might not see it right away, but we can help them see it. Yeah, it's such an important um, clarification. The implication of this is not don't ask or don't listen. Um, <laughs> the, the implication, yeah. yeah, that's the worst <laughs> takeaway. Take but, but it is to actually, as somebody who thinks about this a lot, is to ask for people to complain because that is one of the ways that you actually gather that observation. You just don't have to take it literally, right? And Right. And when you're asking the questions, try not to ask the question that's going to be, this is the, the mistake that I, I've given a couple of times where I've just come in with like the thing that's so easy. Like if I say to my CEO or I'm sorry, I have this other role where I uh, help, I'm helping um, do some learning and development solutions. And if I go to them and I say, would you like your meetings to be more effective? 
Of course, they're going to say yes. They'll yeah, always say yes to those questions, right? It's like, would you like, you know, it's the motherhood and apple pie questions. So I always think, how can I reframe this question to get what at what I'm really asking for? Am I asking, is he willing to change his behavior in order to affect the productivity of the organization? Am I, what am I really getting at? What support and engagement do I really need in order to make sure that they don't just give me like that? Yeah, of course. Of, yeah, of course, course, I would want great. that. Exactly. And then conversely, you know, or not conversely, but along those lines, um, inviting the complaints, but not stopping there. Don't take them literally. Dig deeper. Look for the observation, like your Steve Jobs example. Of, what can I really see in that complaint? Why is everybody always complaining about the same thing? And yes. can I come to, um, or oh, they're all asking for the same thing. What's the question behind the question? And I think that's really the... Uh, right you're really trying to get at? How do we dig deeper? Well, and that's what Alejandro said, right? What is the problem behind the symptoms? Exactly. We have to listen to the symptoms. We yes. have to, no. but we have to get better at instead of reacting to the symptoms saying, let's, let's figure this out. And I think the part that's really important with this, and we talked about this earlier, was this balance of top-down leadership buy-in in balance with change agents within the organization. Because I can tell you from experience, there have been multiple times where I've had stakeholders that said, I don't agree that this is the right solution. Mm -hmm. But those change agents, <laughs> the ones on the front lines were the ones going, yes, it is. Like mm -hmm. this actually is solving our problems. That gives you that data to go back and say, and again, we've talked about this. This is hard work. Yeah. This is hard work. It's grit. It's just going at it again because you're going to run into this. But it's given me the viewpoints to say, hey, listen, I get you're saying you think this is the problem. But look, we tried this. We're working with this group and they're telling us this is actually fixing the problem you articulated to me is, is a problem we need to solve. And I think that's where that balancing act is, is really important. And we keep coming back to the whole questions thing where we have yeah. to ask the questions more than once. And I, yeah. I love the five whys, right? Because it is, okay, you're, you're saying this is a problem. Why is that a problem? Okay. And, and why is that happening? Right. And just being, I, I talked to somebody yesterday, to me, one of the best things we can have as practitioners in this field is a genuine curiosity. Yeah. Right? If we have a genuine curiosity, we will come asking really thoughtful questions. We will come genuinely curious and hungering to solve problems. And that will invite us to that seat at the table we keep saying we want. We don't get invited to the seat at the table by kicking open the door and going, I belong to sit here. That doesn't work. <laughs> could not, could not agree more. Um, and, you know, at least, um, and I'm sure that folks in the room will, uh, will identify with this, that so often people don't even come with the problem, they come with a solution. And that five whys is so important when they come with the solution, right? Like, well, why do you feel like you need that? And, uh, you know, to solve X, well, why do you think that it's going to solve X, you know, just really digging until you feel like you really understand what is it that they need and what are they really asking for? Because so often people ask for an answer. They don't ask for, um, they don't tell you what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny about this and I, I want to close off on one thing because I, I knew we were going to burn through the hour super fast. We could probably just keep the live stream running for a bit. <laughs> um, but what's, what's funny about this is this has been a bit of a hybrid practitioner 
and solution provider conversation, which yes. makes sense given the fact, right? You you're you're chairman of the board, founder of Tribe, while yeah. at the same time serving as a, as the head of learning and development. Yeah. So I think you know one of the things that I don't want to walk away from though, because I think all this stuff we've talked about is is fantastic, and hopefully people based on the number of comments that have come through, hopefully it validates that they've been getting something out of it. Awesome. But, you know, as you look at that, how one of the things I think is really important to highlight with what you're doing with tribe is the fact that sustaining this stuff is not easy. And, and yeah. that's part of the reason why I'm excited with technology because it does make it possible. Yeah. We can't chase learners around, and, and send them emails every third day or call them or text them and say, hey, you know, don't forget, here's a couple thoughtful questions. I mean, we could, but we'd have to have an army the size of, you know, Texas to do it. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, that's my understanding of where Tribe leans in is to say, hey, let's let technology take that sustainable kind of carry forward stuff so that we as an L&D can work on all these big rocks we just talked about, yeah. right? These are big problems that we have to do. We can't be spending our time doing the things that technology can and exactly. automating kind of this sustainability. Well, you know, you, you, you raise a really great thing about what we think about at Tribe a lot is what is the stuff that is the easy to automate stuff that if you give it to people to have to do like what, what we're doing is basically, um, you know, I, I like to liken it to the day to Fitbit. A lot of what we're doing is very similar to what like a Fitbit would do in the past. If you were training for a marathon and you had a coach and they wanted to know how many practices you'd done and they wanted to see how your heart rate was and they wanted to know how you were sleeping, they had to follow you around all day long. Right. <laughs> and what Fitbit does is they automate that. Right. And so now a coach can sit down and get all this incredibly rich data of like, you know, you, you overtrained that day. Um, you, you know, you're, you're working out really hard and that's amazing. All of that stuff is, is, you know, 100% analogous to how we learn soft skills as well. We need to practice. We need to do it repeatedly. If we don't practice, we atrophy. All of those things are very extremely similar to how we learn the, the soft skills or the human skills as you all are advance our human skill set. And, um, and similarly, what Tribe is doing is automating in a very similar way, the simple, simple, small acts that are very yeah. hard for a human to follow you around and be like, oh, did you, did you do that? I like you know, did you do analogy, that? Right. Um, I like the Fitbit analogy, right? I'm, I'm wearing my Ionic right here, right? Because it does, it gives me data and it helps me understand, hey, I'm trying to, you know, lower my resting heart rate. Well, yeah. I could sit and try and take my pulse every day and try and write it down, yeah. and, but, th but that's not the best way to do it. And exactly. you know, I think one of the things that uh, I, I've seen in our industry kind of rise that disrupts some of this stuff or, or inhibits the changes, the fear, right? Mm -hmm. Well, but that's what I'm doing. I'm chasing people around doing this stuff. And, and what will I do? And to me, I say, you get to do the things that have more impact. The stuff right? we were get, just talking you get about. To help stakeholders. You put that data to work exactly. and actually coach and develop the organization yeah. instead of spending all your time sending emails yeah. and and calling people and scheduling meetings. Going well, here's the dashboard of what people are doing, and you know, can can let's follow up and chase them around, right? Instead of this not busy work, work, right? The busy work, yeah. right? You focus on the higher order stuff. So I like the Fitbit analogy. I think that yeah. that helps 
give the analogy of, of really what it's trying to do is to carry that forward so that we can spend our time on higher order things while at the same time still continuing the tough work yeah. of practice and behavior change. Yeah, of organizational change, which as we just talked about is tough. And there's a lot of really good questions and stakeholders. And um, so, yeah, why not automate the little bits and pieces and yeah. make those more accessible? Because they are, you know, just the little bits that fill up the day of what it really takes to learn and grow and change. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic, Naomi. I, I know it's been, we, we scheduled this a long time ago. So I was excited when the time finally came for us to do this. And I think it's been an awesome blend of, of practitioner and service provider conversation. So thanks everybody who, who tuned in today. Uh, loved all your comments. I think we tried to answer as many as we could, even if I didn't pull them up on the screen. But thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for being here, Naomi. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, Everybody out there, we will see you next week uh, with a double header episode next week. So details to come on that. Thanks, everybody. Great. Thanks.